0: Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Fine Pairs Taplines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. As the Temptations once told us, war is good for absolutely nothing. Unless... <laughs> I'm just kidding. We hear at Tapline's HQ stand emphatically against the military industrial complex. Don't get it twisted. But the light beer industrial complex, well, that's a different story. And it's a hell of a story. In 1975, flush with marketing confidence and buckets of cash from new owner Philip Morris, Milwaukee's Miller Brewing Company launched the opening salvo in what would come to be known in the industry as the light beer wars. See, the original light beer from Miller? That wasn't the original light beer, but it was the first successful one. So successful, in fact, that just a year after its introduction, Miller's sales jumped a whopping 43%. And a year after that, in 1977, Miller leapfrogged a struggling Schlitz to become the second biggest brewery in the entire United States. Thanks in no small part to the staggering success of the beer we now know as Miller Lite. Of course, number one was St. Louis's mighty Anheuser-Busch, led by the fearsome managerial mind of August Busch III. Under the reign of three sticks, as he was known in the business, there would be no retreat and no surrender on the American beer-selling battlefield. So the light fight was on to win the hearts, minds, and cash of the nation's ever-so-slightly health-conscious beer drinkers. Joining Taplines from Iowa to tell the tale of low calories, high stakes, and huge advertising budgets is historian Maureen Ogle, the author of Ambitious Brew, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the best history of the American beer business that's ever been put to print. As you'll hear, while war is good for absolutely nothing, the light beer wars were good for dramatically remaking the balance of power in the American brewing business. It's Miller versus Bud. It's the start of the light beer wars. It's the inimitable Maureen Ogle. And it's all right here on Vine Pairs taplines. Welcome to the podcast, Maureen Ogle.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave. Thanks very much.
0: Maureen, it's... So great to have you on Taplines. You and I go back a little ways uh, in this big, interesting beat that we're both on of beer and, and beer industry history. Maureen, where are you joining us from today?
1: I live in Ames, Iowa, which is in the center of a deep red MAGA state.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what about the beer scene in Ames, Iowa?
1: Um, there's There are. Uh two breweries in town one's about a mile away and one's downtown they're not open very often um I think they both can their beer but I'm not sure because I never see it on a shelf so I suspect that they don't but there are two breweries in town um the brewery I'm writing about now, August Schall Brewing in New Ulm, Minnesota, is 180 miles away. But I actually can't get their beer. So this is in the middle of Iowa, and there's beer, but it's there's beer in Iowa. Yes, there is. I think there are like 60 breweries in Iowa, maybe. Yeah. Total. Yeah, something like that. But
0: it's not but two here in it's not by any means leading the charge in terms of breweries no. per capita at a statewide. No.
1: Body. No, it is not. No, I don't know what the bre- that's act. I should find out. I don't. I don't know how many breweries there are per capita in Iowa. But no, it's not. Uh, it's not Minnesota. That's for sure. No. You know, which has a livelier beer scene, or Wisconsin, or Illinois. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's well beyond the purview of uh, our purposes here today on Taplines. Yes. I asked you on the show both because I adore every opportunity I get to have a conversation with you about (laughs) beer history and also because we have a matter at hand to discuss that's very specific, very near and dear, I think, to the hearts of many people who pay mind to the colorful history of the beer industry. Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that in just a second. But Maureen, do you know which light beer was the best-selling light beer in the country in 1974,
1: in 1974, it was probably Gabblingers, but I could be wrong about that. Um, it's an
0: excellent guess. I think I, truthfully, I don't have the answer to this because I looked it up in, uh, or I tried to look it up in, yeah. um, uh, what is the name? Brew- the U.S. brewing industry, the big reference tome, yeah. and I wasn't yeah, even yeah. able to find a definitive answer yeah. because in uh, 1974, the American beer industry really didn't have much of a defined light beer segment. Um, you mentioned Gablingers. Uh, Gablingers. Um, Schlitz, I think, was advertising uh, a little bit around the idea of, you know, sort of real gusto and a great light beer. Um mm-hmm. Meisterbrau, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit. These were kind of all these early entry points to Mm -hmm. a segment that was still coalescing, it was taking shape. And we didn't really know as the major juggernaut it would become, but everything was going to change that next year, in 1975. And that's what we're here to talk about today, which is the beginning of a period that would come to be known as the light beer wars. Um, Obviously, today light beer is just a fact of life in fact it's a fact of life that may be receding uh, in 2023 light beer is a struggling category but for a time for many decades starting in 1975 and rolling straight through uh, the you know the early 21st century um, light beer was the dominant style of beer that Americans drank and Maureen what happens in 1975 that brings this nation this sort of coalescing, style pseudo style of beer um into into the mainstream into the limelight
1: what happens in 1975 very early like late january early february very early in 1975 miller brewing company and that is a whole story that is part of this and we'll why get, it was them and, we will and get right into some that. other place some other company uh three years earlier had bought the meister brow light brand from a failing brewery in Chicago. And they worked on it. Miller worked on it for a couple of years. And in early 1975, rolled out Miller Light, spelled L-I-T-E, and that's a very important point, (laughs) Miller Light Beer. Two years later, Miller Light owned 10% of the entire beer market in the United States. Whoa. And Light Beer as a category by the end of the decade had become this juggernaut that was definitely roiling the beer industry. Yes. uh, uh, A low calorie beer, light, L-I-T-E.
0: Roiling, not just in terms of, you know, selling and, you know, stirring the pot in terms of economic gain, but also in terms of self-definition and attitude Mm -hmm. of the major brewers towards Mm -hmm. this product and towards the people who drank in. Man, echoes of, of, you know, that still ring through the beer industry today as we talk about, uh, you know, how craft brewers have come to see themselves in the marketplace versus what drinkers actually want from brewers and, you know, the Mm -hmm. attitudes towards that type of liquid. But let's not roll forward before we unpack what's going on in 1975. So Miller Brewing Company, I mean, maybe like, I think that, you know, certainly to a listener who is not as familiar with, you know, the trials and tribulations of American beer through the years, um, might not be aware, but there was a time when Miller was not doing so well. And we are kind of, you know, right at that moment, Miller was struggling for a long time, right? Where was, what was the fate uh, of Miller Brewing Company um, as it was leaving the 60s and headed into the decade of the 70s? It was not looking so hot.
1: It was not. Miller, there's a little, uh, enough relevant sort of longer history. Miller Brewing was founded in the 1850s by a German immigrant and, and his wife. Remained a family-owned brewery, reopened after Prohibition ended. That's the operative factor. They managed to make it through the Depression mainly because the Miller family was obsessed with not investing in the <laughs> stock market because they were worried about the Bolsheviks <laughs> causing a revolution. And so they mostly invested in real estate. So they got through the 1930s, and as soon as a beer became legal again, the Miller family Set to and in the late 1940s, Fred Miller Jr., who was a grandson of the original founder, be- became took on the reins of the company and set off on a huge expansion. Miller was a completely small potatoes regional brewer at the time, mm-hmm. nothing to get excited about. And Fred Miller Jr., who played for Newt Rockney at Notre Dame and was a true alpha male, uh, decided he wanted to really turn the family business into a big deal. And he succeeded by pretty much breaking every rule available. He advertised in women's magazines, which brewers had never done to speak of. He advertised in the off season. Most brewers only advertised in the summer. Uh, And it worked. The company grew exponentially in the 1950s. Fred Miller Jr. died in a plane crash in 1954, and the company was then taken over by, um, they were his cousins, by two of his cousins. And in the early 1960s, both cousins, for various reasons, decided they wanted to sell the family company after all this time, 100 and whatever, 10 years at that point. Mm -hmm. And they sold the company to Peter Grace, who was on their board and whose family owned uh, one of those big companies that does a lot of importing and exporting. And nobody really know they don't really make anything, but except a lot right. of money. <laughs> and he, he didn't, you know, he was a friend of the family because of his relationship with them through the Catholic church and felt he could, you know, this would, this would add to our portfolio at Grace Enterprises and after about four years, he just threw up his hands and said, Forget it. I'm I'm I the remaining family shares, they're a pain. I don't want to do this. And he called the president, the CEO then of Philip Morris Company, which, which in the late 1960s, 1969, was an enormous conglomerate that got its start in the 30s uh, with a family that. Sold and distributed nicotine products, cigarettes and cigars. Mm-hmm. They sold the company in the 1950s, and to Philip Morris. And then Philip Morris kind of took that and just ran with it. And they had tons of cash, and they were constantly looking for things to invest in. So Peter Grace calls Philip Morris's CEO, uh, who took the call at the Ritz Hotel in Paris, and two days <laughs> later, Philip Morris owned. Miller Brewing
0: Company. Hold that thought right there, Maureen. I want to. I want to. Okay. Yeah, take that. Th- and that was, you know, I think, in really great little bit of backstory on the Miller Company, and the Miller Brewing Company. Where else in the like? What else was going on in the landscape at this time? Miller was not doing so well, but at this time there were two major breweries that were slugging it out. Um, yes, for supremacy in this yes. sort of consolidating, but then sort of expanding um, in different ways, industry. Who who were the big players at that moment as Miller was? The
1: two biggies. In the 1950s, the two biggies were back and forth a little bit, Schlitz and Anheuser-Busch, until Anheuser-Busch simply flattened everybody at the end of the (laughs) 1950s. So Anheuser-Busch and Schlitz were these two behemoths Their strategy was to build lots of regional breweries. In the 1960s, they built breweries all over the country, and they built extremely modern, high-tech breweries that could make tons of beer at a very low cost. Truth be told, there was too much capacity in the business Mm. going into the 1960s, and it was even worse at the end of the 1960s. But Miller was... um, not really even on anyone's radar cuz these these two breweries really dominated the market and in the 1960s i think there were still maybe 100 120 breweries still left but most of them were tiny companies i think miller was maybe the 11th or 12th biggest brewery in the country if even that big yeah. when when fred died and and they only sold one beer that was a weird thing Schlitz and a B both had lots of brands of beer right they're they're coating the market with all kinds of brands of beer. Miller only has one beer Miller highlight yeah so um when Philip Morris bought it, they're walking into this atmosphere where there are two giants and nobody else really matters and what are, if you're Miller and Philip Morris now owns you, what are you, what's your strategy for trying to knock off these two kingpins without getting killed in the process?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And there was also,
0: there is a moment, I think in the mid sixties that you cover in Ambitious Brew that sort of foregrounds or backgrounds, excuse me, a lot of you know, sort of what will come, which is in nineteen sixty six the Supreme Court says no more acquisitions, there's too much consolidation going on. If you want to grow, you've got to go out and build, you know, and and, and develop your own breweries, innovate your own products, find your own growth because you two big guys, A B and, and Schlitz um, you know, can't consolidate any further for the time being, and so I think like that's an interesting detail that maybe doesn't directly inform what's going on with you know Ad Miller in 1975 when Philip Morris, uh, you know, the person they installed this guy named uh, I think John Murphy, right? John Murphy, yes, yeah. John Murphy. Um, when yes. you know he sort of takes them to the next level and and you know figures out that light beer is going to be a thing, but. This idea of like the big, big brewers have to innovate their way to growth rather than acquire, you know, growth from other smaller companies or other, you know, like regional segments is one that may be influential in like this idea of developing new segments, which was at that point, this idea of like segmentation and fragmentation was itself kind of just coming to the beer industry, That's right. right?
1: That's right. That's right. And it barely even brewers were very resistant to the segmentation in the 1950s after world war ii there is absolutely no doubt that especially in the food and beverage industries in the united states there was enormous growth for a number of reasons for demographic reasons the population shot up blah blah and uh, big corporations like Philip Morris mm-hmm. was developing products for various niches. So, Philip Morris would have a cigarette. Benson and Hedges was for women. You know, people are looking for niches to sell in. Sure. The brewing industry was surprisingly resistant to that well into the 1960s. That, in a beer maker's mind, everyone's selling the same beer, a lager, and short of making, using different bottles or fancier labels, there's not a whole lot of differentiation. For example, in the 19, right around in the early 1960s, um, August Bush decided that he would jazz up, uh, Michelob, Michelob, right, right. Which Anheuser-Busch had been brewing for years. It was, it was, um, it was, you know, it, Michelob was heavier. I don't have no idea what Michelob's like now, but it was, uh, it was a lager with basically more malt and more hops than a conventional American lager. So Anheuser-Busch put this very fancy um, foil lid on it and jazzed up the label so they could sell it as more of a premium beer. But that's about as far as they went. Also in the 1950s, and definitely relevant, some brewers, not Anheuser-Busch and not Schlitz, Decided that they would try to tap into Americans' passion for dieting and calorie counting, Mm. which Americans were maniacal about in the 1950s. So there were a handful of beers that were introduced to try to uh, extend the market for beer. For example, a company in Omaha introduced seven-ounce cans, which had kind of a pink ribbon around them, Mm. uh, for women. The Peel Brothers in Brooklyn introduced Red Letter beer, which was a low-calorie beer, as did uh, Rheingold with its Gablinger's beer. And the idea about these is they will appeal to people who diet. Frankly, it was kind of a dumb idea because, generally speaking, people who dieted didn't drink beer right. anyway, so you, you know no one was gonna really be drawn into this. And yet, but if could I, if ahead.
0: I could interject, like, and yet there were some like green shoots of a good idea there that they were kind of maybe for the wrong reasons, oh, yeah. but they had kind of stumbled across. A, Mm -hmm. what a business, you know, what an MBA would call an important insight about the industry, right? Is that like, (laughs) there's opportunity here and they weren't, they didn't quite tap into it. They didn't, they didn't really get it right in terms of, again, another MBA term, product market fit. Mm, Doesn't that sound important? Product market fit. But they had this idea that was not entirely wrong either.
1: No, it, no, no, it totally wasn't. It, this was absolutely in their best interest. But anheuser Bush, in particular really um, dragged its heels at this. You know, they had a very sophisticated marketing department and computer guys all over the place by the late 1950s. But They were kind of stayed in a way. Mm. The companies that were innovating were these smaller, regional, almost local companies that are trying to find a niche for themselves. The problem was the federal government in the 1950s was unhappy about the idea that brewers were trying to sell a beer as something that could help with weight loss. And so by the end of the 1950s, there were a lot of restrictions about how you could sell a so-called low-calorie beer, which was one of the few innovations going on. The other innovation, which is worth mentioning here, is this is when imported beers started to become important right. in the United States. And that showed American brewers that people will drink something else if they can get a hold of For it. For
0: more money, too. So,
1: so, but when when going into the 1960s uh the two biggest brewers were mostly just intent on breaking everybody's kneecaps they didn't really see <laughs> the need to innovate with the beer they just figured they could keep steamrolling their way through with these new very high capacity very efficient Breweries that made beer at a much lower cost than, say the people at August Shell Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. there's no doubt that they were and they were dumping lots of money into advertising so in the sixties, there's so much innovation in other food and beverages at the time. Brewers just kind of they were they were laggards, which I think is one reason why Miller Lite hit with this punch that it hit with like a sledgehammer, because it really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: They were lager laggards is, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah. Uh, and I think
0: it would be helpful to, certainly for me and certainly for our listeners, to, you know, what, why was that, Maureen? Like in your estimation, obviously you've done an enormous amount of work to try to understand what's going on in the beer industry at this time and other periods in our history, Where does that attitude come from? I mean, it's not that they were lazy. It's not that they were, um, you know, resistant to change in some ways. But in terms of changing the liquid, they were very resistant. Where did that come from? Is that a family thing? Is that an arrogance? (sighs) What what would you attribute it to?
1: I think it's a combination of a lot of things, especially World War II was really difficult because there were shortages of raw materials Mm. for making beer and and everybody struggled through that. And in the years just immediately after the war, there was enthusiasm for you know maybe we need to kind of rethink our beer uh, so we don't get caught up again with shortages should that happen. But also, beer sales n- never picked up. Um, the The key demographic in beer sales is eighteen ages eighteen to thirty. Mm. And there were not many people in that age group in the 1950s, because during the Great Depression, the birth rate dropped considerably. So here's the fallout from that. So brewers, they're struggling already. Even Anheuser-Busch, there are labor strikes. All of the big ones got hit by labor strikes Mm -hmm. that really um, kept the market dynamics going like for a while, Anheuser-Busch was, during one prolonged strike, you know, was basically missing most of the market. And so Schlitz would go in and try to take over. Interestingly, the Miller family during this period refused, absolutely refused to think of having more than one brewery. They were convinced they could stay in Milwaukee, even as Schlitz and Anheuser-Busch are building them all over the country. So, it, the small brewers in the 50s that tried to innovate like peel or like Schaefer, rupert ringle um, whatever yeah. The, yeah the, they they didn't get a whole lot of return on it and certainly not enough return to protect them against these two juggernauts that have no reason to innovate you know right. they're already winning the world that big innovation of the beer industry the big beer industry in the 1950s was uh, embracing professional sports and using television and professional sports to advertise beer. That was that was like their big innovation. So there, there's just this um yeah, I think for example, in the Bush family, I, I think there was a certain amount of we don't really need to do mm-hmm. this. And and I'll just say to sort of jump the story ahead, when Miller introduced light beer L-I-T-E in 1975, Anheuser Busch said, not. Nah, we are not going to do this. They, they
0: looked down their so, noses at it. I mean, it was embarrassing. Y- yeah, how, how, how could you so. ever sell something like Budweiser is yes. light enough. Anyone can drink Budweiser. Everyone loves the locker. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I do think, it, and Schlitz lost its way in the sixties because again, this, the Eline family um, was resisting any moves that might affect their shares, the <laughs> you know, their income from shares in yeah. the brewery. So, there there was uh definitely I hadn't really thought about it before, but it is true that during the fifties, there was very little interest in innovation. And even during the 1960s and the innovators were never the big breweries. It was always someone at the bottom who's trying to figure out some way to stay in business yeah. and protect themselves from the big guys. And they,
0: those little guys never had the economies of scale. They never had the access no. to distribution that the big guys did. And I mean, some things change, some things remain the same in the beer industry. So if you're coming at this in 2023 with an understanding of the way the modern the contemporary beer industry works certainly there's an enormous amount of difference but some things remain which is access to markets and economies of scale and marketing as you mentioned television national television marketing remained the name of the game uh this whole way through so there are some parallels there um the, you know, we've talked about the small guys, we've talked about sort of the background that led us to this moment, but now I want to focus in, and I'm sure our listeners want to focus in on this moment in, you know, midway through the seventies, it's 1975. Philip Morris owns the Miller brewing company. They acquire the second, I think the outstanding, you know, 50% or 47% of the company they didn't already own in 1970. So now they fully own the company. As you mentioned, Philip Morris, unlike the big brewers at the time, was a major conglomerate that already understood. Um, I think in your book you refer to it as Procter and Gamblizing uh, a market. They yes. understand segmentation. They say we're going to sell you this type of toothpaste, but you're another type of person, so we're going to tell you sell you another type of toothpaste. Right? This right. is. Uh, this is sort of the modernization of consumer packaged goods, and Philip Morris is much more on the front lines of that than certainly than the Miller Brewing Company, but also than Anheuser Busch, than Schlitz, than any of the other you know big brewers. So, what's the dynamic when Philip Morris takes control of the Miller Brewing Company? I mean, is this like the slick guys in the suits rolling into a tired old brewery? Like, tell me a little bit about how they how they set about turning around this company that they now own.
1: Uh, it was it was kind of a tired company in I think 1958 or 59, the very very long time second in command at Miller died and it was clear that the cousins weren 't interested the the one the guy the manager was not a member of the family mm-hmm. and the the company was definitely drifting as I say. they only had one product they had miller high life that was yeah. it. that was the beginning and and that and that occupied a very specific niche. It was the champagne of bottled beer, right. so it was always been marketed to a particular kind of, a particular income level mm-hmm. or a particular um,
0: kind class, of
1: right?
0: person yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. so it, it was not a company that was it was going nowhere fast somebody else would have bought it eventually that that is 100 percent sure they had a decent facility i will say because when fred miller bef, jr before he died um had built a very modern state-of-the-art facility but they there was no one and in charge to figure out what to do with it so in comes philip morris and they send John Murphy. John Murphy had been working for Philip Morris for about 10 years at that time. He was a, a tax attorney and he had worked. He started at, at Philip Morris as a tax attorney. Yeah. And the current CEO, um, not the CEO, the, uh, but he would have been the president, was a guy named Weissman who'd been with Philip Morris since the 1950s. He was a public relations guy. He understood marketing and PR. And together, these two guys start thinking, well, now we've got this brewery. Because they own, Philip Morris owns a lot of stuff. Right. So they're not, you know, and, and as far, you know, John Murphy's view was, this is just another agricultural product, just like cigarettes, right? You just make a lot of them and sell a lot of them and you'll make money on them. So So that's what they set out to do. They came completely from the outside, so they're not freighted by any of the angst that the nineteen fifties had <laughs> instilled in other brewers. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they just they're coming at this from a fresh start. And in either nineteen seventy 1970 or nineteen seventy one, Weissman and Murphy um, were in Europe doing Philip Morris business because one of them at that time was also vice president of global operations or something like that. And they were in Germany.
0: That's how much they cared about Miller was they had other responsibilities. Miller was just another asset that they had to manage. That's right.
1: No, it's another asset. It's there. It's Philip Morris spent the 1950s going from being a little dinky cigarette company that nobody really ever heard of to turning itself into an absolute behemoth in the space of 10 years. So yeah, these guys are like ready to go. 1970 or 71, Weissman and Murphy go to Germany. They're in Germany for on business. They're at a restaurant and Weissman had diabetes in his family. And he had always been interested in the idea of a beer that would have less carbohydrates and would be friendlier to a diabetic. And Germans had had a diet beer since the 1930s for for that very reason. The people who developed it in Germany in the 1930s, they owned a brewery and they had diabetes in their family. So this beer had been for sale in Europe for about 20 years by the time Weissman and Murphy come across it. So they're drinking this and the light bulb goes on. So they look around and they find Meister Brau in Chicago, which had been launched in 1968, I think. And I think Brau, yeah, 67 or 68. 67 yeah, yeah. or 68. Meister Brau was one of these struggling small breweries. It had been the Peter Hand Company, and then it got bought out by a bunch of investors. And they had this brand called Meisterbrow Light, which they wanted to go national with. And that's easier said than done, (laughs) especially if you're a beer maker and you're not Anheuser-Busch and you're not Schlitz. And no surprise, within a few years, the company is teetering on bankruptcies. Miller Miller or Philip Morris didn't want the company. All they wanted was that recipe and that brand Mm. because they were going to use that to create, very intentionally, create a new market niche. And their reasoning is very simple. He who creates and holds on to this niche is going to be the winner in the end. And it worked. So
0: Meisterbrau, the slogan was, meet the beer you needn't hold back on, I think. and that, yes. So it's introduced yes. in 1960, right at the end of the 60s, either 67 or 68. And yeah. did people like the liquid? Like, you know, maybe it wasn't marketed well. It sounds like the business infrastructure behind, you know, the beer wasn't very good and the investors didn't know what they were doing didn't know how to go national. Did, were people drinking Meisterbrau?
1: Well, apparently not enough <laughs> no. of them, and certainly not an, certainly not enough <laughs> nationally. But but they had the one. All of the companies that tinkered with a low calorie beer from 1950 on, it was always like, how can we make something that won't be as fattening, but will still have flavor? It's harder than it mm. sounds. You talk to any beer maker, and they'll tell you, you know, it's a tricky balance. Sure. And uh, Meisterbrow had hired serious brains to develop their recipe, So that, which is why Miller bought it. The the, it, the idea was solid, but the investors who currently owned that company, you know, I don't know why in the heck anybody would have bought Peter and brewing in 1967 <laughs> or 68. Cause you're, it's never going to go anywhere. Right. I mean, little breweries were hardly good investments, yeah. but Miller could see the value. I mean, they're, remember there, these guys are coming from Philip Morris, they understand market niches. They understand market fragmentation. They understand how to cater to these niches. They understand advertising. So they're just trying to find one. Yep, yep. You know, and it just happened to be they were inspired by this diet beer they drank in Germany. And these two guys said, well, let's go for There's it. There's this and company right, right, down right after the road, that yeah. is when yeah, yeah. Miller bought the Meisterbrow brand.
0: So Miller buys the Meisterbrow brand. Um, and they know that they have this, this thesis, right, that they developed in, in Europe, in Germany, when they go and drink the Germans version of what would eventually become American light beer, that man, there's a, there could be a market for this. We have the know-how, we have the money, crucially, um, what do we do with this Meister Brau beer? So what happens next? I mean, this eventually, Meister Brau eventually is the recipe that they tweak and fiddle with Mm -hmm. to make the Miller Lite that hits the beer industry like a freight train in 1975. What did they, how did they do it?
1: Well, one thing is, I I need to stress this because I think of everything that came out of this episode, far and away the real biggie is that Philip Morris brought so much money <laughs> into they that was the part that was just leaving people reeling in the 1960s. Schlitz could come in with one of its new factories and blow, you know, a handful of regional brewers out of the water. Well, suddenly Miller is spending unheard of amounts of money, not just to develop the beer, but then also to market it and distribute it. they they're just, there's, at one point, I can't remember if it was um, Anheuser-Busch at Schlitz, but they both both asked for federal, one of them or both of them asked for federal protection. They said, (laughs) you know, is it really legal for Philip Morris to come in here and dump all this money? Is it, it's kind of like the Elon Musk thing now. Can Elon Musk take money out of Tesla to prop up Twitter? Well, that's, that is what Philip Morris was doing. They were just Funneling money in there, but they also, because they were so savvy about marketing and market niches, said, "How exactly do you persuade people to drink a beer that's spelled L I T E? What you know? In the past, um, many brewers opposed low-calorie beer because it implies." that regular beer is fattening and that the lower calorie stuff is going to have less flavor that somehow it's not going to taste as good Mm -hmm. and be, and it's, um, kind of not manly. Mm -hmm. So the brains at Philip Morris slash Miller looked at all this and said, well, the big factor here is to, to promote this with as many macho men as we possibly can find so they rounded up all these mostly retired professional athletes who were well-known at the sure. time. You probably wouldn't know who any of them are now um, retired because at the time you couldn't really use a, you know, a professional player an active for these kinds player, of yeah. projects. So anyway, so, so they roll out this rather astonishing marketing campaign that on the one hand has Bubba Smith, who was an NFL player this is how I open a can of Miller Lite and he twists the he twists the top of the can off. There you know, it's a pull top can but he just on on camera he just twists it off. Um they you know, the commercials just ooze testosterone. Sure. But the the additional genius was to not so people wouldn't forget that this was um a uh, light beer. They introduced a commercial that I, I think ran for twenty years. One side of a stadium yelling "Tastes great," the other side of the f- stadium is yelling "Less filling." So this is, you know, this is a great tasting beer, and you, if you don't want to get filled up, you can drink it. But if you don't care about that, you're still, no one's going to make fun of you, and you can drink this to your heart's content. And
0: crucially, not less calories, less filling. Men men get filled up with a big meal, but if you don't want to get as, you know, as full, that's okay. Here's a light beer, not less calories, watch your figure, less filling. You can, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you can drink more of these.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. And that, that was the importance of the LITE because for the previous 20 years, L I G H T beers, light beers, had always been marketed either as something that's um, not dark and heavy. Mm. You know, it's just. Light like, in color. Budweiser is a lighter beer than, than McLobe, or they had been overtly marketed as being not fattening, which again <laughs> is kind of a dead end for marketing right. since people who worry about their diet probably aren't going to drink beer right. anyway. So. Miller, the people from Philip Morris just simply just shoved that out all out of the way. And again, they came in, they're not beer makers, they're marketers. So they came in here and came up with this genuinely brilliant marketing plan.
0: And it hits, it hits the air in 1975. Miller Mm Lite hits beer shelves across the country. Was it national right away? Were they able to? Yes.
1: Yes. I, I think, I think they did a brief like test rollout perhaps in Chicago, but no, it went national very, very quickly. So
0: they, so they go national with it. This, the beer is selling well, it starts set, like you said, I mean, you know, they, they, they carve out 10% of the overall U S beer market, um, by the time the seventies are through. Um, and uh, you know, I think like one of the things that people don't maybe understand or realize is that there was not an immediate reaction from the bigs, you know, the the AB and the Schlitz over what would become a very big problem for them. What what did they do initially? I mean, you described this a little bit early in our conversation. There was a little bit of the thumbing of the nose or or the you know, the looking down at this product as lesser than, right?
1: Yeah, well, again, from a brewer's perspective, it's sort of like like in the meat industry. If someone markets their beef as all natural or organic, it implies that all other beef is, unorganic right. and unnatural, right. right? So there was resistance. Anheuser Busch just, I mean, they just utterly dismissed it. Ortlieb in uh, Philadelphia, long time family owned brewery that still existed. They, they ran ads locally <laughs> with the owner, Joe Ortley, this was clever. standing in front of a table with a glass of water, a pitcher of water and a bottle of Ortley beer. You pour some or half the glass is filled with the beer. And then Joe says, this is how we make light beer. And he pours the water into the beer. And then he says, this is why we don't make it. So, I mean, there is resistance to it. On the other hand, Schlitz did come out fairly quickly, um, not just with a low, with a light beer, but also um, with they uh, James Coburn, name probably no one would recognize today. He was an actor at the time; very he always played really macho roles. Mm. So Schlitz hired him, and they, their version of the this beer is good enough for men w- was so. Um, teetering on kind of violence and threat that in the industry, the marketing campaign was known as drink Schlitz or we'll kill you. (laughs) So, so, so there is some response, but uh, it, but it wasn't, it took two years before everybody else said, Oh, Hey, maybe we better come up with something. And when Anheuser-Busch finally did in, I believe 1978, their answer was natural light because, of course, they're Anheuser-Busch, right? So they've got to have a twist to this light beer thing. So theirs is organic and all natural because the counterculture, counter cuisine, was becoming mainstream at the time. So that was, the, that was Anheuser-Busch's initial contribution. And frankly, it didn't do well at all. And A.B. didn't really catch up at all with the light market until 1982 when they introduced Bud Light. And that's uh, quick, do the math, five, six, seven years after the sure. fact, which is astonishing when you think of how well Miller light was doing. It, it just took Anheuser-Busch a long time.
0: When Anheuser-Busch finally gets seriously in the game into the light beer segment is that the moment where you'd say, like, was it already considered a segment by the time they backed into it? Yes. Yeah. So, yes. so they, you know, in other instances, we talk about the big, you know, macros, uh, uh, finally rolling out product into a segment, which legitimizes the idea of the segment, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. saw it with wine coolers. You saw it with a bunch of other products throughout yeah. the eighties and nineties. This was not one of those cases. Anheuser-Busch stumbled into the segment after it had already been been accepted by consumers and the rest of the industry.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So they were late. They were late to the game.
1: Oh, they were very late. In in the interim for reasons that had nothing to do with it. Schlitz effectively committed suicide, Corporate suicide. All on its yeah. very own. And and by so by the end of the 1970s, the two giants in the country are, in fact, Miller Brewing with its one brewery mm-hmm. and its two beer brands. Mm-hmm. Miller Lite and Miller High Life. That's all they got. And the behemoth, Anheuser-Busch. So in the space of less than a decade, Miller did what Fred Miller wanted to do. They they uh, became a giant killer.
0: He just wasn't around to see Thanks it. to
1: Philip Morris and its buckets and buckets of money. I, I cannot stress how shocking the money was to people. There had never been money like this poured into the beer industry. It was... Uh, it, that That is the thing that just sent people reeling. And
0: this turned, it, this touched off what would come to be known as the Light Beer Wars because, you know, as you mentioned, Schlitz, you know, committed a, a corporate form of suicide by and this is an infamous uh, moment in the beer yeah. industry worthy of its own Tap Lines episode, and I suspect mm-hmm. we'll be covering it at some point on this this podcast. Yeah. But in brief, um, what they did was they tried to shortcut on ingredients. They used hopped extracts um, in order to cut down on costs, and it was a disaster. The liquid you know, uh, wasn't up to snuff. It was a disaster. They couldn't course correct in time, and and it, that's where it all came unglued for Schlitz. I mean, they yes. never recovered from never. it. Never, no. But Maureen, our listeners today in 2023 they know three light beers that sit at the top of the American Pantheon um, for that segment one is Bud Light of course the best-selling beer in the country um, for another few years maybe we'll see how long they hold on <laughs> uh, then of course there's Miller Light which we've talked about LITE the original light beer from Miller was mm-hmm. how they they tagged it in 1975 and and you know is off to the races and it touched off the light beer wars. There's a third player who we haven't mentioned yet. It's a little concern out of Golden, Colorado. I'm talking, of course, about those Coors boys. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where is Coors in all of this? I mean, this silver bullet, um, you know, we know it now as one of the big
1: three light beers that Mm -hmm. where was it? What what was going on? What happened with Coors, which it's kind of a parallel story. Coors, Coors had been in business since I think 1867, always owned by the same family. And their thing was they made beer, one beer, and they made it for the climate they lived in. They made it for the arid, temperate West. It was a very, that was truly a light beer, not because it was low in calorie, but it's just, it's very drinkable. It's an extreme, it's a what Generations later would call a good session beer. And they also only marketed it west of the Rockies. You know, they they never made any attempt to go national. Unfortunately, thanks to baby boomers in the early 1970s when I was off doing all my drugs, Coors became this um, this very chic beer. It had this mystique. Uh, there's a wonderful story of a fraternity in Tennessee at a university in Tennessee that They pick two of the younger fraternity brothers and order them to drive to Colorado and bring back as much as much beer as you can stuff into that car. And they got stopped on the way, unfortunately. But uh, Gerald Ford flew it into the White House for taco night. Uh, Paul Newman loved Coors beer. And so the Coors brothers who were running the company in the 70s said, by God, we have something here. Let's take it and run. Let's try to knock Anheuser-Busch off. Well, if your whole, the whole cachet of your beer is its inaccessibility and the water.
0: The mountain water.
1: The Rocky Mountain water. If you're going to suddenly build a brewery in Virginia, how much cachet do you have left? And it did not go particularly well for Coors. Uh, it did mark the beginning of the end of the family ownership. I mean, they did—they did fine, but they—they—they—they they, um, they n- they were never going to topple. They were not going to topple Anheuser-Busch. They, you know, they didn't have Philip Morris's money, but they were smart enough to turn out a light beer. And you're right. By 1990, the three biggies were those three light beers, what they taste like, I have no idea because I've never tasted a light beer. Oh. So beats me.
0: As a matter of uh, professional ethics. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't see the point, frankly. I don't, I don't get, what's the point in drinking a beer if you're, yeah, I just don't. Get well, it, and that so.
0: brings us to That's one me. of the main pejoratives or the, the classic craft brewer jokes that comes about in the late nineties, early two thousands. What's the, what do, you know, uh, uh, making love in a canoe and drinking a light beer have in common? It's fucking close to water, right? That's, this is where that comes from. Is this, this
1: idea? Actually, it doesn't. (laughs) It comes from the 1970s. Is that right? (laughs) Believe it or not. I heard that joke when I was in... And it was coors.
0: It was always coors. That was, that was the original. Yeah. It was
1: bashing coors. Yes. Coors was like fucking drinking water. You know, <laughs> drinking fucking water. Yeah. It was coors. So it's it has had its variants over the years. This is
0: why yeah. this is why we have you on tap Maureen, to correct the historical <laughs> record so I don't get myself in too much trouble. Because they look at me, I'm that just that out here spewing uh, disinformation, fake news. <laughs> it's fake news fake here on the tap. I news. thought I'd never see the day. How how ashamed yeah. I am! But no, thank. Oh. Well, there you go. So yeah, Coors was was dry. It was light, but to some people, it was too light, and uh, and it just it didn't it didn't make the grade. And and when they finally introduced the you know the Coors Light, the actual Coors Light brand, that was over the protestations of Joe Coors, if I remember correctly, uh, and Pete Coors, mm-hmm. who's still alive and still owns shares in the company and still, you know, a figurehead on the C-suite over there or whatever. Um, He was, you know, he was there, John Murphy, uh, who was like, we got to do something, guys. We got to, yes. we got to turn this thing around. Please let me, let me introduce a new beer. Let me introduce a new style of management, yada, yada, yada. And, and Silver Bullet eventually came to be and, and they, uh, they were able to, sneak into what was then a pretty hardening top three. You know, there, there was, there was a moment where cores might've been boxed out and they, they got in right under the wire there. (laughs) They did. Yeah.
1: They, they really did. And, uh, again, had they not had their own version of John Murphy, that's, they would have been just hung out to dry because Anheuser-Busch was never going to let them get away with it. So you know, so yes, they did get in. And so, so by 1990, there's three big breweries. And it, and light beer made it so. And a bunch of, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to end, I want to end with, we've gone the distance here. We went from the 1950s all the way up to 1975 and then past. Um, We talked about, you know, the way the light beer wars, kicked off um you know the the conditions i like to think of them as sort of like small state skirmishes that were taking place uh before the great <laughs> powers got involved right you know yeah. um but there yeah. was a there is a famous quote a, oh, i would say a definitive quote for this era um and what it you know the way the market took shape the importance of marketing and advertising um the the corporatization and competitiveness that all sort of gets compressed into this light beer moment. Um, And it comes from uh, August Bush, uh, the -hmm. third, right? We're talking about the third. Yeah. It comes from August Bush, the third. Um, And when, when they find, when Anheuser-Busch finally decides to get involved and, and realizes that light beer is not something that's just going to go away and holy smokes, now we have a legitimate competitor in this Miller Brewing Company backed by Philip Morris, what are we going to do? Well, what we're going to do is exactly what Philip Morris has been doing this whole time. We're going to throw money at the problem. And August Bush yeah. has this incredible quote that, you know, is, is the one that everyone, maybe one of the two yeah. or three that everyone remembers him by. Do you remember the quote? Would you like to deliver yes, it? Yes, of course.
1: Of course. Of course. It was in 1976, a big business week magazine, multi-page article. Well, and actually it's worth reading the whole thing. A great piece of journalism. Uh, Tell Miller to come right along, but tell them to bring lots of money. Bravo. Well delivered. <laughs> that's, that's a little the, bit of drama on
0: which we can quote. we can close out the Taplines episode. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for yeah. taking us uh, right up close and personal with this crucial, pivotal moment in American beer history.
1: Pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.
0: All right, we'll see you next time. Okay. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Tap Lines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.